Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, we speak with historian and best-selling author Ted Barris about Canada's contribution to D-Day as we mark the 79th anniversary of that major Second World War event. And it comes as British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak posted a tribute on social media to the sacrifices of British and American soldiers only, but admitted Canada. Why did that happen? And why are we often overlooked when it comes to our contribution to the Second World War? The indictment against former President Donald Trump has been unsealed relating to the mishandling of those classified documents. What did we learn and just how strong is the prosecution's case? What could the punishment be if he's found guilty? We find out. But first, under fire for weeks, former Governor General David Johnston called it quits late Friday, announcing he was stepping down as the independent special rapporteur on foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections. He cited the partisan atmosphere surrounding his work as the reason for it. So what next? Will anyone want to step into his shoes or will the government finally call a public inquiry? Let's start in Ottawa because, you know, the, the old term in politics and journalism is the Friday dump. That's when big news comes out late on a Friday when most people are simply enjoying the end of the week and not paying much attention. This may or may not have been a case of that, but late today, David Johnston announced he was resigning as special rapporteur on foreign interference. In a letter addressed to the prime minister, The former Governor General writes, when I undertook the task of independent special rapporteur, my objective was to help build trust in our democratic institutions. I have concluded that given the highly partisan atmosphere around my appointment and work, my leadership has had the opposite effect and goes on to say, I encourage you to appoint a respected person with national security experience to complete the work that I recommended in my first report. Um, You know, if you remember back to March, the whole point of appointing an independent special special rapporteur was sort of to take the heat off the government uh, for having been or having been accused of having done too little uh, over allegations of election interference by Beijing in the 2019 and 2021 elections. Of course, Johnson came under fire very quickly uh, because of some of his alleged links to the Trudeau family uh, and to the Trudeau Foundation, but it all really came crashing down with the release of his first report on May 23rd. It not only did not call for a public inquiry, as many had hoped, um, but found little fault with the Liberal government's handling of the issue. So last week, Parliament passed a motion asking for Johnston to step down. He said he wasn't going anywhere. And then on Tuesday, this was really the final straw. He appeared before committee. MPs questioned him for about three hours, and he found himself defending both his integrity and the thoroughness of his report, and it did not go well. What Mr. Johnson's report is, is nothing more than a whitewash. It has no credibility, and Mr. Johnson demonstrated that today in his inability to answer the most basic of questions. Conservative MP Michael Cooper there. On Wednesday, we spoke with NDP MP for Vancouver East, Jenny Kwan. CSIS has informed her recently that she has been and will be the target of Beijing's foreign interference, or has been and continues to be. Uh, She took part of that committee hearing as well. Here's what she had to say. This whole process was wrong from the beginning. There were more and more concerns about the perception of conflict. And, And so the House of Commons said very clearly that Mr. Johnston needs to go. He needs to actually not carry on with this work. And there's Jenny Kwan. Well, late today, of course, the opposition are calling still for a public inquiry. Uh, the Liberals are not saying what they're going to do next. To help us out with all of this is Stephanie Carvin, an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in a very busy Ottawa on a Friday night. Stephanie, thanks so much. 
Hey, thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. Uh, wow. Uh, I mean, this isn't all that unexpected, but the timing, the timing, what do you make of the timing? It's interesting. Friday night, you know, I think a bunch of, you know, like, let's, let's all pour one out for the journalists that had their uh, weekend plans perhaps destroyed by um, the news. Um, but yeah, I came after a week of some pretty, I think, heavy blows. There was the parliamentary vote. There was the testimony. Um you know, I, I think Mr. Johnson's a good person. I think he has served the country very well. But at some point, you know, you're being asked to help restore faith in Canada's democratic institutions, um, and you're ignoring Canada's democratic institutions <laughs> when they say they have no confidence in you. And at the end of the day, it's just the car had no gas, right? It was it was perhaps unfortunate for him, but it was a necessary move for him to make, especially, I think, after this week. Yeah, the, the committee appearance to me was really the, the final straw, not so much just because of the, of the ongoing attacks about on his credibility, but it's when they started to poke, poke holes in his work that I think this really came crashing down in the report itself. Now, in his defense, he didn't have much time to put it all together, and that was the fault. I mean, he was kind of set up to fail, if we're honest. Yeah, I mean, it's a very hard thing to do, and I mean, the terms of reference were relatively narrow. It was supposed to be about uh, electoral interference. And then, uh, but he did take it upon himself to then start looking at certain kind of media reporting and things like this. But it's a very hard issue. But, uh, you know, it's, his, it's also his responsibility to staff up with people who can help him do his job. And I mean, okay, I'm going to say the most professorial thing that like I sure. can, but like, <laughs> yeah. like, 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 and you know what, I can feel, I can feel the audience rolling their eyes and that's fair. Um, but like, you know, the footnotes were bad. <laughs> the footnotes were bad. Yeah, that's always a dead like, giveaway. It, isn't it, it indicates that, like, what surprised me is that, like, there's been so much written about foreign interference in Canada, and there were no citations to any of that. Like, they cited like an Australian website, a good website, um, they, like a blog uh, written by like another professor. But like, there really wasn't a lot of. I mean, maybe they felt that the research was done at the classified level, and they didn't want to. Uh, use it, but like it, 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 like the whole thing did feel a little bit uh, under underpowered, I think. But but that being said, um, there's a lot of good in this report too. And for all of the the kind of partisan concerns, which you know, fair enough, okay, it's out there, like partisan concerns. But there's a lot of good in this report too. And I do worry. I don't want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, the recommendations that Mr. Johnson makes with regards to the broken flow of intelligence from uh, the agencies themselves uh, through to the prime minister is so fundamentally important that, you know, this is something that I worry is going to be lost as we're kind of watching the government kind of figure out what its next steps actually are. Yeah, when you look at what the issue is here, I think it was sort of running on two tracks. I think Johnson's report was was good in the sense that it that it did recognize the problem. It also recognized some of the reasons why the problem exists. What it didn't do is sort of drift into the political side of it and come down hard on the liberal government, and that's where it fell into the partisan side of things. Yeah, and then it became untenable. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't going to move. Clearly, the conservatives had decided that this was going to be a scorched earth policy. That's what they've done. Let's be honest. Uh, you know, the NDP. Well, you know, they they stood up for some of the things they wanted to. But it's all about that 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 inquiry, that public inquiry. The fact, if he had called for a public inquiry, I think everyone would have been okay. But he didn't, and that was a that was a tough a tough decision to defend. It is. I mean, look, um, 
like, again, like you can have like policy smart and politically foolish. Right. And I agree with you 100 percent. That's the way I've been thinking about this, too. It's like this has been like a two track thing. Um, Like the policy recommendations are actually pretty good. Politically, I I, doesn't seem to be working so well. Um, Look, let's be honest. A public inquiry is not going to have a huge dump of classified information. And foreign interference isn't, you know, we can talk about it. There's a lot that's out there in open source and things like this. But at the same time, it is actually some of the most close hold, carefully guarded intelligence that we actually had, right? And we've gotten a flavor of that. The fact that, you know, like it involves kind of the surveillance of politicians and prominent Canadians and things like may not be you who aren't threats but maybe targets right and who may be caught up into this this is incredibly sensitive stuff and this idea that you know we're going to have an inquiry and all this is going to be thrown on the table it's not happening right it's just not going to happen so there are real limits to what an inquiry is so i think when mr johnson said like look like i don't see what the difference an inquiry will make versus a, a commission will have and i think he's actually right on that aspect but on the political side i think the thing that's missing is this idea of accountability right and it's something that you keep hearing from the diaspora itself they're like look we've been talking about this for years you haven't cared until like all these leaks appear in in the newspaper and all these terrible things have happened to us we want accountability we want to know what happened and that is where the inquiry i think is useful so maybe not a dumping of intelligence, but possibly, you know, questioning, putting public figures on on the hot seat and asking them, you know, well, why were these decisions made? Why was nothing done? I mean, I think this is what people do want to see. So uh, whether or not the government goes in this direction, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's hard um, to know. know, Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie Carvin is with us this half hour from Carleton University in Ottawa. We're talking about a special rapporteur David Johnston. No longer. He resigned tonight after a tumultuous several months in that position, put there by the government ostensibly to look into foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections by Beijing. He did produce a report, but he got caught in the crossfire here, so to speak. Uh, Stephanie, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, they've been talking, I, I was interviewing Jenny Kwan on Wednesday, and she's like, well, we could all agree on somebody. And I thought, well, who is this mystical person? Person you're all going to agree on for this. So what next? What where do we go from here? Well, that's just it. I think one of the problems with the way that this was handled um, by all parties, honestly, is that who, who in their right mind is going to do this? <laughs> it's going to be uh, you know every single aspect of your life is going to be scrutinized for any kind of uh, affiliation whatsoever, right? Um, and so this is this is going to be an issue. I, I think. What I'm hearing from the political parties in Parliament, at least the NDP and the Bloc Québécois, is that they're looking for a retired federal court judge, um, someone who, and the reason is like federal court judges um, deal with warrants and things like this, but also um, the uh, they they often deal with the the national security side. Judges that are have have high levels of clearance and approve, say, CSIS warrants and things like that, they're called designated judges. And um, so there's a series of designated judges. Some of them have retired. Um, Some of them have moved on to other things that could be used to run such an inquiry. Um, I I strongly suspect that might be the only option the government has left. But, I mean, hopefully this judge, I mean, like I said, they're going to, you know, you're really kind of putting yourself in the limelight now 
if if you do this. So I think recruit. I think recruiting a prominent Canadian is just out. Like I can't think of anyone who would put themselves no. forward for this. But um, a judge may be the way to go. If yes. if so, we should say the government decides to have an inquiry, they could always decide in the end. Sorry, that was our one shot. We're not going to do it. And that's that. And you know, we're going into the summer. They could they could ostensibly get away with that. I think politically, uh, for now, I, I think everyone's sort of proven their point. It, it, if they did bring in uh, a federal court judge, that judge would simply have to say to all parties, "Listen, I'm not going to put up with any of your shenanigans." And that's that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether they could. Well, Part of Johnson's so. problem yeah. was that and he. They- he yeah, Johnson's problem was that he was always convinced in his own integrity, right? Because he is, yeah. uh, he is a he is a man of integrity in many ways. So he, this completely blindsided him. You could see it. Uh, the next person mightn't be so mightn't be so unaware. But yeah, the other thing about Johnson, though, if I could just get to this point for a second, you know, one thing that really surprised me about this whole thing is that like he kept saying you he would say some very odd things like, oh, well, Parliament voted this way because. Um, they, they voted on false information. I'm like, yeah. you know, you, you don't need to say things like this. I mean, um, what I didn't understand is, like, why didn't Johnson just say, I've been appointed the prime minister to do this job. If you have a problem with that, talk to the prime minister. Like, where's yeah. Trudeau at all this, right? Well, um, I mean... What's really odd was that the way Johnson decided to defend himself, he made himself a sponge for all the criticism. And Trudeau really hasn't been there so i mean at some point like i mean or or like you know he probably should have said something like i appointed johnson if you have a problem with it come to me don't blame him um but yeah yeah, i I mean i I think they i think they put him i mean not to be too cynical but i think they looked at the at the landscape and they put him there for that reason because they figured he'd be able to absorb this because of his reputation and clearly times have changed and and the and the situation is is one that's that's charged the one thing of course is that we we haven't got well i suppose the report in of itself goes to certain distance to to helping fight this problem but it doesn't feel like we've done much to tackle foreign interference in the last four months or so exactly I mean, the government is moving in some ways. We do know that there will be legislation coming on a foreign foreign agent registry. Like, that is definitely in the works. They have been slowly trying to create the mechanisms within government. There is a foreign agent um, or a foreign interference coordinator. Um, To be dead honest with you, I've not heard great things about how that's going. Um, So hopefully they can beef that up. We do know that um, the... Privy Council office is taking that issue much more seriously. But here's the problem. So long as like we don't know where we're going, so long as this is kind of a, a rudderless issue, um, this we're going to be focusing on how to deal with the problem rather than deal with it. And, you know, we've already, you know, with Johnson's resignation, whether it was inevitable or not, we've lost three months, right, of, of work that could have been done on this. And so whoever gets these words stuck with fixing this, um, they're going to have to start, you know, they're going to have to be briefed up. They're going to have to start all over again. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're losing time. And that's what really concerns me is that we're heading towards an election, not immediately, but, you know, down the road. And we are, we need to fix this. And so beyond the foreign agent registry, beyond creating some institutions to deal with foreign interference, we really also need to fix the broken chains within government with regards to intelligence. So, you know, so when something like this happens, everyone can't hold up their hand and say, well, I didn't know, or no one briefed me. 
we need to fix that urgently. And that doesn't require legislation. It sure does not require a commission in any way or a, an inquiry. Um, the government can definitely take steps. And I, I would advise them to start taking steps to fix this now. Um, so, you know, Canadians can have some faith in, in the yeah. next election when it comes around. Well, Stephanie, as always, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. For now, let's go to Halifax because it's been a really tough time for a whole bunch of families there. You know, there were those massive wildfires. We talked about them uh, late last month. Uh, 150 homes destroyed. 16,000 people at the peak were forced out of their homes um, right around in that area outside of Halifax. Now, the mayor of Halifax, Mike Savage, said yesterday that emergency alerts will explain how access will be granted to various neighborhoods because a lot of those people are now going getting to go back to survey what happened. We remain committed to addressing community safety and to helping people regain what was lost. As residents return to their communities, we know that those communities are forever changed and that there will be questions and concerns. Uh, the mayor of Halifax there. Now, there are still roughly 4,000, maybe a bit less today because people have been slowly going home. But what about the people who lost everything, uh, whose homes burned to the ground and now they're trying to pick up the pieces? One of those uh, people is Dalen McNamara with his uh, with his family. He lost both his home and his business called Hole 9 Golf. He's a golf instructor in the wildfire in Hammonds Plains in that area. He and his wife were away at the time, but his four-year-old son was at home with his mother-in-law. It's been a really difficult time, and now they're trying to sort things out, and he joins us now to tell us all about it. Uh, Dalen, thank you so much for sharing this with us tonight. Thank you. Uh, a tough time. I know I, know I was I, I was listening to an interview that you did. You were out of the country, at the or heading out of the country, and your mom-in-law and your son were home alone. It must have been a really, really, I mean, so many Canadians are going through really difficult times with these fires, but that one sounds particularly difficult. Yeah, so I was in California. I had actually uh, been there for about seven days. I was supposed to be there for another seven, and then I was supposed to head to New York. Uh, I was down there doing some education conferences for uh, what I do for work. I'm a golf coach. I received the call. I was bringing my wife to the airport. We had dropped her off, and we had just kind of toured the Grand Canyon and Vegas. We got the call while she was sitting on the plane that this was taking place. And of course, these days, everything pops up on social media so fast, you're seeing pictures of it before you really know what's going on, right? We actually didn't get any pictures at all. I, I looked at social media once I got that phone call, and there wasn't very much. I checked Twitter. I seen a few things on Twitter. And then I called, like, once I spoke with my mother-in-law, she said, you know, it's I can see some smoke. It's well in the distance, so we've got lots of time. I'm going to start preparing anyway, and, you know, we're going to pack some bags and go to my sister's for the night. You know, we thought nothing of it. We thought it was going to be quick and easy for them to get out. I sent a few friends to the house to go cry and grab some of our valuable items in case, you know, the fire did end up over there. And within 15 minutes from that phone call, our house was up in flames. 15 minutes after that phone call, just a your mother-in-law saw a little bit of smoke and 15 minutes later, the whole house was up. Yeah. So our subdivision was catching fire from the ashes that were kind of raining down. We lost our cats. That was one of the downsides. Obviously, we weren't, weren't, we weren't, and still aren't happy about that. But it is something we'll have to continue grieving and accepting. Right. Yeah. Flying back in was it was surreal. You know, everything we were seeing online is that the sky is full of smoke. There's ashes everywhere. And when we flew in, I tried to look from both sides of the plane. I didn't see any smoke, to be honest. So it just kind of felt not real as we landed. As soon as we got out of the airport like i could smell smell the smoke at the airport so we knew you know obviously we 
we've been told we've seen pictures and videos, but you knew how serious it was when you're 50 minutes from my house and I can smell smoke. We drove back to where my mother-in-law and my wife with my son are staying and there was ash falling there. You know, it sure wasn't, wasn't over yet. What did you find? I mean, you, eventually you're allowed to go back in, right? To have a look. What, what did you find when that happened? So we were told yesterday, 10 days, we get to go back. I, I managed to get in because we were, we we're still hopeful that our pets, you know, jumped a window or something and managed to survive. But, you know, it's not, it hasn't been looking good. They've been in that area looking for pets and our, we've had traps on our property and there's been nothing. But I got escorted by a police officer up to go see it. And to be honest, it was, it was emotional. It was tough to, to see everything you had gone. And, you know, in some of the flames, some of the metal items you've had are right there. You can see my wife's spin bike that she uses every day is kind of standing vertically up while everything is just ash around it. A few other items we had that were of value, my golf bag, you can see some of the clubs kind of sticking up, but they're completely destroyed. Wow. Just gives you an, impre- an idea of how hot it was, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Clearly, you, you have to rebuild, but it's going to take a long time. I understand you have to itemize everything for insurance purposes. I mean, everything is gone. Where do you start to rebuild? I'm, I'm a, an ex-military guy. I, like, I'm very task-oriented, so I, I kind of went into the you know, let's focus and lay out some tasks. Let's get these things done. And really, like, I've started the process of looking for a new lot, looking for a new property, um, doing some building plans with some contractors so that, you know, I'm ready to go if as soon as we have a better understanding of this claim. I I don't really know what's going to happen, whether or not we're forced to rebuild on that lot, if, you know, what kind of claim we're going to get. I know that people are saying sometimes the insurance claim is covering wildfires from our understanding ours is good right but the the communication hasn't been good with insurance like you know we got our initial advance and that went you know the day we received it and now we've been asking for more i've asked six times and i just keep being told that they're going to look into it it's this is your day-to-day stuff right this is just to keep you keep a roof over your head right now yeah so like we're in a hotel right now that's supposed to be covered by insurance and i'm supposed to check out on wednesday next week and i still don't know how i'm gonna pay that bill because i haven't been provided the money yet right so like it's gonna be an awkward wednesday i think but uh we'll see what happens i guess yeah the the stress of it i mean just the i I don't know it's hard to comprehend having everything gone how's how's your family doing how's your boy i know he was there so He's uh he's doing much better. You know, we're we're really trying to keep the story at how brave he was to keep to get my mother-in-law out of there instead of she got him out. Right. <laughs> so he right. feels a little more, you know, tough about the situation and you know, we're letting him talk about it. We're we're trying to allow him to to be a kid and keep him, you know, at playgrounds and having some fun. He's learning how to swim this week, which has been just a really big highlight for all of us. A little silver uh, lining and all that, and all that smoke. Yeah, and the, the hotel has been incredible to them. They've done so much for them. They they bring them up toys. They make an extra, you know, blueberry pancake for them or something. And it's it's been, it's really been a, a blessing in in all of this to to have so much love coming our way. I know you don't have much time um, to do this, but you must be watching and seeing all the other Canadians out there being driven out of their homes, just like you were. Some of them have lost them, some of them haven't. But man, what a tough summer already. 
it's been it's it's been uh two of our close friends are also uh part of that that were neighbors of ours and we're you know we we normally spend every day together and they're at the hotel with us which is nice but you know different families cope differently we're we're really trying to see what future is going to hold and stay positive because you know our community has stepped up they created a gofundme page for my company to try and help us rebuild they've been providing so much for us paying for meals and it's you know feeling that kind of love is is really what's going to make this rebuild process easier so well dalen thank you so much wish you of course your you and your family the very best best of luck with everything and the rebuild of course uh it's going to be tough obviously but it sounds like you sounds like you have the right approach to it thank you Uh, You know, this is not new, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada's annual report. Severe weather cost 3.1 or caused $3.1 billion in insured damage in 2022. That was up from $2.1 billion in 2021. And the third worst year in Canadian history, 2016, is still the worst because of the Fort McMurray fire. And it's hard to know where to begin with 2023. We've had all these fires. It's not even mid-June yet. Um, And obviously, it's part of a larger trend, this extreme weather that has, in fact, we think, been driving up the cost of home insurance uh, as that kind of these kind of weather phenomena become more common. Uh, Larger losses clearly are the biggest contributor to highest higher premiums. So say uh, many experts out there. And picking up the pieces is no small task when it happens to you, right? Uh, Especially when you're part of a major disaster. We were speaking to Dalen McNamara in the last segment, and he talked about, you know, how he was left scrambling to try to work things out with his insurance company, uh, given where he is now. Here's what he had to say. The communication hasn't been good with insurance. You know, we got our initial advance and that went, you know, the day we received it. We've been asking for more. I've asked six times and I just keep being told that they're going to look into it. There you go, Dalen McNamara. So what do you need to know? How can you best prepare yourself for something? Hopefully it never happens to anyone listening tonight. But what can you do to best prepare yourself? Make sure that your insurance covers what you want it to to cover and so forth. Joining me now is Anne-Marie Thomas. She's Director of Consumer and Industry Relations with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Anne-Marie, thanks for your time on this Friday night. Oh, thanks for having me. So this Halifax case, I mean, I was trying to picture what it must be like when something like this happens, when a whole bunch of, when there's a disaster, in other words, you know, 150 homes burned down. Uh, There must be a real backlog when it comes to these major disasters, when it comes to insurance, a bottleneck, so to speak. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. So I literally just came back from Halifax or, Mm. or Nova Scotia. So I was in the affected areas. I've been in Halifax. I've been in uh, Barrington, and I was in Shelburne. Right. And insurance companies were were on the ground, so they had adjusters deployed to these areas, taking claims, and in some cases issuing payments right at the minute. Um. So uh, you know they're they're. Uh, they're in the business of paying claims. So when catastrophes like this happens, insurance companies like to respond as quickly as possible to get these people back to the position that they were in prior to the loss. Right. I mean, in this case, I guess part of the issue is is, is just trying to get, get that money to keep a roof over your head. I mean, I suppose the problem here is that you lose everything and you're reliant kind of on, on, on trying to get this day-to-day money. And it's all a bit it's all a bit complex if you've never gone through it before for the policyholder, not for the company, obviously. Yeah. Oh, sure. So, so the insurance bureau of Canada 
has a consumer information center. And if you don't mind, I'm going to give your listeners that phone number right now. It's one 227 5422 And if you don't, we're great, we're agnostic, right? We, we're, we're not, we don't belong to any one insurance company. So if you have a question or residents or listeners have a question about their insurance policy or what should I do next, or my insurance company said this, is that correct? Give us a call. We'll ha- we're happy to help you sort through all that and even, you know, provide you with the questions that you should be asking your insurance company. Right. Because I guess a lot of a lot of people out there now with these fires, I mean, this will probably, you know, once it dies down, people will move on to other things. But right now, people must be looking at their policies going, what would happen? What would happen if that were my house? And what should they be looking for? And that's ex- that's exactly it. You know, sadly, these events remind us that we should be sort of doing an insurance policy checkup of sorts, right? So do I have the coverage that I think that I have? Do I have the coverage that I need? Are my important things covered, right? So uh, you go through your house, take 10 minutes, 15 minutes with your cell phone and just videotape each room of your house. Because in the event of a loss, sometimes you don't remember what what exactly was in that room or the things that were on that wall, right? So having having a video documentation of the possessions that you had is great because it's it's it will serve as a reminder to you to log all of the things that you lost if you're right. in the event that your your home is totally lost. I saw a good piece of advice that when you change the batteries in your smoke detector, you should do it then. You should do it then because you can sort of put it on a to-do list and do it all at once. That's an absolutely wonderful idea, right? You know, when when you're thinking safety, um, you know, what you don't want to find is in the event of a catastrophe like these wildfires, you don't want to find out after the fact, oh, gee, I didn't buy this coverage or I should have bought that coverage. Do it before anything happens. What what impact has extreme weather had on policies right across the country? Because there'll be people listening to this in areas that aren't impacted by wildfires themselves. We'll think, oh, you know, it's been a, you know, I live in downtown somewhere. Uh, you know, probably probably the chances of a wildfire encroaching on my home are probably pretty slim. But this is having an impact right across the board, right? This extreme weather? Right. So extreme weather is having an impact across the board, as are a number of factors. So, you know, we're we're coming out of, you know, hopefully the the COVID pandemic and we're being faced with, you know, we being the insurance industry is faced as with as is everyone, supply chain shortages, trade labor um, shortages. So the longer a claim stays open, the more expensive it is for an insurance company. So it's in the insurance company's best interest to get all of us back in our homes as soon as possible. Right. right. I mean, there's certainly and, been, some, been some... Yeah, go ahead. And, and, and so things like... <clears throat> um, 
supply, as I mentioned, supply chains. So shortage of materials or the length of time that it takes to get materials all have an impact on claims costs, which at the end of the day have an impact on the premiums that we pay. Right. And I guess, again, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the number, but the, the point here is to try to make sure you have the right coverage and not, and not suffer any kind of surprise. Anne-Marie Thomas, thank you for staying up on a Friday night to talk to me. I appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk weather first, though. Uh, obviously, you know, with the kind of wildfire season we're having, we're talking about it in the last half hour. It's having an impact on in, on insurance rates right across the country. Uh, we spoke to a family in Halifax who've lost everything. Uh, so what exactly is going on? Well, part of the answer to why we've had such an active fire season so far is the weather. I mean, it's just the weather. It's dry. It's dry, 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 and a lack of participation uh, precipitation rather. Uh, and this is just the beginning. I mean, we're not even in summer yet officially. And there is some sense that this is what the rest of the summer could look like in much of the country. Now, you know, long-term forecasting is never an exact science, but that's kind of the feeling that Dave Phillips has, someone we've spoken to a lot. He says the lack of rain this spring has created dry conditions that are causing issues for just about everybody who relies on the land, from farmers to those wildfires. And to top it all off, El Nino conditions are present now and expected to gradually strengthen in the Northern Hemisphere uh, coming up next winter. Here, have a listen. And El Nino is a natural, temporary, and occasional warming, a part of the Pacific that shifts weather patterns across the world. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says for the next few months, during the northern winter, El Nino will most be felt in the southern hemisphere. It hits hardest in the northern hemisphere from December through February, shifting the winter storm track farther south to the equator. The entire southern third to half of the United States, including California, is likely to be wetter in El Nino. It could heighten the risk of landslides. Forecasters say the Pacific Northwest and parts of the Ohio Valley could go dry and warm. Ed Donahue, Washington. So we've had a hot, dry winter, a hot, dry spring, well, at least a dry winter, a hot, dry spring, and now we're heading that way into the summer. And to top it all off, we have an El Nino coming in that may have an impact over next winter and next spring. So let's try and add this all up. David Phillips, a senior climatologist at Environment Canada, joins us now. David, thank you. Well, thank you, Ben, for inviting me aboard. It, it's always nice to get your perspective on these things because, you, you, you know, you, we've talked over, over, over many years and different, yes. where I've been at different places. What is going on out there? Because it feels like this year, somehow, the Canada's weather has become like, like living in Death Valley or something. It's so hot and dry out there. Well, you're right, Ben. I mean, we, we, we can be a warm country. My gosh, I remember uh, two years ago, we established the warmest temperature in, uh, in Canada, an all time record. I mean, higher than any temperature ever in Europe or South America and uh, hotter than the Phoenix and, and Las Vegas. I mean, so hey, we're not just the, uh, the second coldest country in the world. We also have very warm temperatures. And this year, you're right. It came kind of early. Um, and I think people were surprised because out west and, and on the prairies in British Columbia, people were asking, well, where, where's spring? It's not here yet. It was April. It had been pretty cold. The ground was frozen. The ice was still in the rivers and the lakes. And then all of a sudden, I think nature heard that. And said, "Okay, 
we'll skip spring and just give you summer. So we went from winter to to summer, from slush to sweat. And we saw that in May. And we saw some of the warmest temperatures ever in May across the West, uh, uh, breaking records or the second warmest, say, in Winnipeg in, in 150 years. We saw that in Alberta, Saskatchewan. I mean, really, out West, it was, uh, May was really very warm. Where here in the East, it took a little while to come, but finally it did warm up in May. We had some kind of uh, summer-like temperatures in April, but but it really didn't get going until May. But one of the things that clearly was the, the common denominator across the country, Ben, was how dry it was. I mean, I looked at the conditions from, say, from the uh, January right through to May. I could only find about maybe four wet spots in Canada, uh, the Yukon, uh, Northern Northwest Territories, uh, Baffin Island, and uh, an area in British Columbia near the Alaskan Panhandle. The rest of the country was dry, dry, dry. And in some cases, we had never seen it so dry in the last hundred years. So I think the seeds of this kind of fire season had really got going early. We we saw the, the dry conditions. And the fact that you can go from melting snow to, to, to summer-like temperatures without the trees greening up is a very critical time because that is where you're very vulnerable to having um, any kind of ignition, whether it be from people starting fires or from uh, lightning, boy, it's, it's a tinderbox and you're going to have that. And so what we saw then was some thunder, but mostly people starting fires from really coast to coast. Fires in uh, one of the worst fires ever in British Columbia in the northeastern part of the province, still raging now. We saw in Alberta, of course, um, and then, of course, Nova Scotia. My gosh. Nova Scotia, st- yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. Uh, shocking. I mean, in fact, they, and they again, they had very dry conditions. I talked to a, a farmer in Prince Edward Island. He's, he said, well, I, I've been uh, irrigating my potatoes in May, uh, more more irrigation in May than I would usually put in July and August. And so we saw very dry conditions. And then, so that is, you're very vulnerable to these uh, fires. And so we saw these fires breaking out from really across the country. And that was a big difference this year. Yes, they were early. Uh, they were national in a way, and they were huge. The area burned was really shocked me. I've been in the business a half a century, and I've never seen, I, the f- number of fires were up, but not dramatically. But the area burned, Ben, was like almost 15 times what we see burning at this time of the year. So, hey, uh, we've been trying to put out fires uh, across the country. We're still trying to put them out. And it's not only the flames that scare people, it's the smoke. And everybody, if you haven't seen the flames, boy, you've smelt the smoke. Certainly. I, I, and we're aware of that. Uh, not, not as much this year so far, but certainly where I, where I am, we have the same thing. I, I was interested, too, and this has been talked about a lot, that uh, it was dry. It's been dry for a while. It's not just the spring, but right through into the late winter, it was very dry. So, uh, you know, the conditions were such that that it was, for, you know, if a fire were to catch, it had a lot to burn. Oh, uh, clearly. And we saw that certainly in, in the Maritimes, extremely dry, at lo- less snow. And when the snow then finally melted quickly, and then you had this, and, and the dry continued. It was just dry, dry, dry. We certainly saw that in uh, in the Maritimes. And of course, we had that that uh, Hurricane Fiona last September, mm-hmm. and it came down, brought huge amounts of, of uh, trees, millions. And then it's been a warmer than normal winter, and it was drier. It was like kindling. I mean, the, the region was just all that timber coming down and sitting there and drying out with no snows and less, no rain and, and, and uh, warmer temperatures, a lot of evaporation taking place. 
So the vegetation that was laying there, which is often the, of course, the fuel for driving these uh, forest fires, uh, was really being uh, prepared for the fires when they finally got going. The other thing, Ben, interestingly, we, you know, we often sometimes say, well, we blame it on lightning strikes. Oh, no, no. At the beginning of the season, it's not lightning. Lightning comes later. Right. I mean, uh, Nova Scotia gets, I mean, 3% of its fires are started by lightning in the year. We had the lowest lightning strikes in Quebec in 22 years of records. And so it wasn't lightning. But when it's so warm out there, like in the spring, hey, people leave their homes. They go into the wilderness. They set fires to have that campfire. They bring their all-terrain vehicles, their dirt bikes into the forest. So there were more ignition sort of hits in the forests, I remember last year, was it a year before, where it was a very slow start to the fire season in Canada because it was so cool and wet. You couldn't get anybody in the cities to go and visit the forest area. They didn't want to open their cabins or their cottages or go fishing or, or things like this because it was so miserable. So when you have a delightful kind of spring, it lures people out. And boy, then you have more of a chance for these things to uh, to ignite. David, you've looked ahead as well, and and and, and you're saying this is... Weather kind of sets in and then decides to hang around. That's what we're going to see for the rest of the the summer, you think? I kind of think, Ben. You know, I mean, I always think uh, we always do a better job describing what we've had than what we're going to get. Well, indeed. Well, indeed. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So I don't want to get you into trouble. I don't want to get you into trouble. Well, I know it's it's fraught with certain kind of uh, risks, but... Hey, I've looked at the models, the American models, Canadian models. You always feel a little better when the Americans and Canadians are saying the same thing. Now, not everybody. I think some of the private weather services are saying maybe not quite as as warm and dry as we're seeing. But but we've looked at the situation from, say, June, July, August. Uh, particularly, we're, we're better in one month than three months. Hey, the pattern is clearly warmer than normal. Now, we're not saying how much warmer, Ben, uh, and it's not going to be consistently warm throughout the summer. I mean, we, we really call it an outlook. It's, it's like a weather outlook rather than a forecast. Not like yet tomorrow's forecast. We're very specific with details. Uh, we just say, well, you know, the personality character, the nature of the summer ahead, uh, come Labor Day, here is what we think will happen. And we have three choices, Ben. Right. It's, it's, you know, throw a dart, you know, I mean, three possibilities. It's going to be warmer than normal. It's going to be colder than normal or something in between, which we call seasonable. And there's there's uh, an equal chance of any of those ones occurring. So our models that run from the supercomputer in Montreal, they spewed out the forecast and they said, okay, from coast to coast to coast, it looks like a warmer than normal summer. Now, it sort of buys into this fact that we've seen our seasons are warm. Hey, I mean, we, 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 even our winters are actually even warmer than they used to be. I mean, old timers will tell you that, hey, the climate has changed and, and boy, they're, they're right about that because uh, we see more often we see these uh, conditions being warmer than normal. So, so that's what our call is. Uh, we think the, and, and it's had a head start because winter, uh, was a little on the warm side so it doesn't have a lot to go to get up there and we think because also because of el nino el nino this warm water in the pacific i was going to ask you about that we just yeah, found it, yeah they sort of the americans came yesterday and did all these stories about el nino being uh being present now so what what impact will that have well i mean it's typically will happen you know it's taken hold now it's going to grow in intensity so it may not have an effect on this summer it certainly uh hey 
I, I might bet a loony or two on what the summer is going to be. I think I would bet a few more loonies on what the winter is going to be because El Nino really affects our winter in Canada. So, so we think the winter next winter will be milder than normal. And the most of the scientists are suggesting that makes next summer uh, usually it's a, it's a year after the El Nino begins. It should be really warm. And the last time the world was the warmest year ever was 2016. That was the last significant El Nino we had. So people are suggesting, well, it's going to be warmer this spring because of El Nino, warmer water out there. And, but next spring, next summer will be even warmer. So my sense is, uh, uh, warmer than normal. I doesn't mean when you take your holidays, Ben, uh, doesn't mean every month is going to behave the same, but we think think the uh the overall that's where we're headed now the precipitation ben is tough i think quite frankly we would probably not want to issue the precipitation for us not that we're scared of it it's just that there's not a lot of skill in it i mean you're talking about storms that aren't even born yet and you're trying to figure out what the long range is so temperature works are are we're, we're quite skillful at that and and but precipitation is a bit of a crapshoot but yet we are saying that it looks like in many parts of Canada, uh, you know, drier than normal. So that's an ugly combination, uh, Ben. I mean, it's, warmer yeah. than normal, you need more precipitation just to balance things out. And when you get it drier, wow, that's going to create some problems. Uh, it's going to create problems for farmers, for forest firefighters, a busy season. So I, I think I'm not suggesting it depends on lightning strikes, of course, and people's maybe people be more vigilant and not not to. Uh, setting their own fires out in the wilderness area. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see. But it has implications for rivers and, and water resources and agriculture. Clearly, we've got, hey, so farmers on the prairies are kind of worried about the fact that this is uh, might be a kind of a drought year. With it warmer than normal, hey, uh, that would... Um, hey, I think the mosquito season, though, on the prairie is, is looking pretty good because it's been so dry right. and, and warm. So, you know, there's not a lot of reproduction going on there with the uh, with the insects. The silver line in all this. I, I, you, I saw you refer to the current high temperatures and dryness as just a dress rehearsal, but it very much feels like the real thing. David Phillips, as always, thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Ben, so much. Bye-bye now. Dropped us in the water and it was pretty rough and I, I got sideswiped by another landing craft coming in and I could see stars because like, I swallowed a lot of water. You know, you sort of get panicky and I swallowed a lot of water and I end up... Uh, <clears throat> I made way way to shore somehow, and uh, I got on the beach, and I scrambled, and your world is about 10 yards, eh? That's your world. That's, all, that's what you're looking at. And uh, all you could see was uh, everybody scrambling for themselves, and everybody, everybody was doing what they're supposed to, going forward. They were going forward, scrambling out of the water and going forward. One of the... Uh, people hit him, he'd been shot or so I popped in beside him as Corporal, Corporal Scaife, I remember his name, he's from Saskatchewan. And I started to talk to him, realized that he was either mortally wounded or he's already dead. Those were the words of retired Major Jim Parks, uh, done a few years ago by Global News, uh, describing the moment that he landed on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. 
as a rifleman with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles. A really touching uh, interview if you get a chance to see it. It's on YouTube. I highly recommend watching it because it really brings you back to what it was like. That idea that that you only had 10 yards around you as they hit those uh, beaches on uh, June 6, 1944. This week, of course, marks 79 years since an estimated 14,000 Canadian troops took part in that definitive offense on the beaches uh, of France. There were 1,074 Canadian casualties, 359 killed, including the 27-year-old corporal mentioned in that clip, Lawrence uh, Lawrence Scaife from the Winnipeg, the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, uh, mentioned again by Jim Parks. Um, it began along a 100-kilometer stretch of French coastline across the English Channel from Great Britain, and it was the largest seaborne invasion in history. Of course, Canada played a huge role in this. There were larger contingents. There were 156,000 soldiers in all, American, British, Canadian, men who stormed the beaches, uh, codenamed Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. And Canada did play a really big role in this, right? And that is not has never been in dispute. But that contribution has and still is at times overlooked. Take this week. On June 7th, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak posted a note on social media, a commemoration really of the 79th anniversary that read as follows. 79 years ago, British and American soldiers were landing on the beaches of Normandy. British and American soldiers were landing on the beaches of Normandy. Their cause was freedom. As on D-Day, British and American forces today to continue to stand for freedom, peace, and security, we honor them and those heroes who made the ultimate sacrifice. And that post included uh, a Union Jack and a Stars and Stripes, little emojis of those two flags. Well, he was visiting the U.S. in his defense. He was visiting the U.S., so to draw those parallels seemed to make a certain amount of sense. But it landed with a thud on this side of the border because a lot of Canadians and almost every single response to that social media post seemed to come from Canada was trying to reminding the British Prime Minister that he was leaving someone out, that when you look at the arrows of the nations that that stormed the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944, there is another flag in there, and it's ours. It is, you know, it is the Canadian flag. Um, at least now it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the same flag back then. Uh, but still, Canada's contribution and sacrifice that day is without a doubt recognized. But the fact that someone in as high a position as the British Prime Minister, could forget about it, is really disheartening. Uh, the replies on social media were almost all a bit like this one. As a former officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, one person wrote, I would suggest you get yourself a history book. One book that Rishi Sunak may want to consider is Juno, Canadians at D-Day, June 6, 1944, written by my next guest. Ted Barris is a historian, writer, and best-selling author of nearly two dozen books, including that one published back in the earlier part of this century. He joins me now from Ypres in Belgium, where he was providing history to a tour group visiting Canadian war memorials, including in Normandy earlier this week. And he joins us now. Uh, Ted, thank you so much. You're so welcome. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you've been there. You're, you're over in Europe now, uh, taking part in the commemorations, uh, the 79th anniversary of D-Day, as well as other war sites important to Canada. Tell me about that. I mean, there's still a lot of interest amongst Canadians in this history. There is tremendous interest. And you always fear when you lead these tours, and I'm sort of uh, an add-on to a tour of about 35 or 40 people as the guest historian, you always worry that when the veterans aren't there as plentifully as they have been over the past 25 or 30 years, that maybe the impact, maybe the, 
the emotion, maybe the sense of connection to this great story, whether it's the D-Day beaches or going back to the First World War, the power of the Vimy Memorial and what happened there in April of 1917 will fade away and disappear because people don't have the same excitement about being there. That's not true. Canadians love to be here when they can see their flag, when they can see those few veterans who come forward and speak, however feebly, and they thrill to be at the locations that have always been movies, uh, stills, uh, feature films, maybe family portraits, because they have snaps from when a father or a mother or a grandmother or grandfather was there 79 years ago. But when you're standing there on Vimy, or you're standing there on any of the five beaches on D-Day, and you feel the blustery wind coming in off the English Channel, and you recognize the distance between what the where the waves ended and the beach began and the seawall ended, they are absolutely gobsmacked by the reality of it. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, those cliffs. I mean, you, you, it's hard to imagine those cliffs until you see it's hard to imagine coming off, coming out of the water onto that beach and looking up at those cliffs until you actually look up at those cliffs. It is mesmerizing and terrifying at the same time. The, the cliffs along the D-Day beaches were really only problematic for the Americans. Right. Because the Canadians, as you probably know, came in on more or less flat, open uh, beaches, very heavily fortified, but small villages and relatively easily tra traversable topography. The Canadians that day, though, I mean, we should go back and talk a bit about Canada's incredible contribution on uh, June the 6th, 1944. Uh, a, a large contingent, not the biggest, but certainly one of the most significant. And and, a, and despite the many, many deaths, uh, success to some extent, Canada had played a huge role on that day. Canada was a remarkable third party in the arrangement of the D-Day operations. We had punched above our weight throughout the war and were chomping at the bit to have a chance to be part of the D-Day operations and came in on one of the five beaches, codenamed Juno. But it wasn't just the men who landed on the beach and who took Atlantic Wall in that sector, the, the wall of defenses that the, that the Germans had presented in front of them and, and that the Canadians had to run the gauntlet there. The Canadian Navy helped the Amrita of 7,000 ships get across the channel. They swept the channel of German mines. Canadian paratroops in the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion, they landed to the east of the, the D-Day beaches, helping the British Airborne secure the area across the Orne River so that the Germans couldn't counterattack and delay or push the D-Day operation back into the sea. Uh, Canadian air crews, fighter pilots, reconnaissance pilots, bomber pilots, coastal command pilots and crews, um, those who delivered the gliders by the hundreds to further give the impact of the landings, uh, the strength that they needed to get more manpower ashore. And ultimately, the the uh, people who brought in on the landing craft, the tanks, the self-propelled artillery and the infantry delivering 15,000 Canadians to the shore. All those people were Canadians who'd been preparing for four years for this operation. And it's always mentioned, I mean, in terms of the memories of the history of that day, just how far Canada did advance when, when it was a very chaotic and difficult operation uh, on June 6th. The remarkable thing is that uh, in spite of the rather innocuous looking beach on which the Canadians landed, the Germans were ready for them. Uh, across the beach in front of the Canadians, there were 15,000 obstacles, many of them mined. They were hedgehogs. There were Belgian gates. These were traps for tanks. There were all kinds of contact mines and all kinds of traps for the Canadians to step into or to bump into with a landing craft. There was enfilade, this 
crisscross fire of the machine guns once the Canadians got to the beaches and tried to penetrate into the, the villages. All of that made what looked like a fairly uh, innocent beach all the more deadly because the Germans were ready and waiting. And yet Canadians came ashore in waves beginning at about 10 to 8 on the 6th of June and managed to move inland some seven kilometers by the end of the day. We took greater territory away from the Germans on that first day than any of the other allied navies, armies and air forces uh, on June the 6th. But at, a, at a huge cost. Yes, but not as many lost uh, Canadians as were anticipated. Right. Uh, there were a thousand casualties, three or four hundred killed, 600 casualties captured. But the anticipation was that the casualty rates would be much higher. There could be thousands and thousands, not a thousand. Um, and the operation with all of its intricacies, the swimming tanks coming ashore with the first hussars, the Fort Garry horse, um, and the Sherbrooke Fusiliers, the ability of the tanks to actually be launched at sea and then deliver for the infantry all the power they needed to penetrate into the villages more quickly. All of that stuff took incredible planning and organization um, and coordination before it could be accomplished. And here we are 79 years later, and, and the legacy of that day, when you're there for the commemorations as it happens each year, now clearly they're always a bit bigger on those sort of landmark anniversaries like 70, 75, and I'm sure next year, but 79, here we are 79 years later, and the history of that day is still very much alive and appreciated in Normandy. It is. You see uh, French flags and Canadian flags perfectly positioned all through the villages along the D-Day coasts. You see villagers who are eager to, to meet you and talk. But what strikes you most are the children. When the children come up and they want to tug your coat or they want to they get a pin from us or they want some stories or they just want a handshake, um, you know that the torch has been passed from the generation of French people who were here when the landings occurred 79 years ago to their children, to their children, and it means something. And so that makes Canadians who come here all the more grateful that they remember, grateful that their parents' sacrifices are remembered, and that uh, the French never forget. And so all of those wonderful cliches are not cliches because the children deliver the truth from their mouths, from their hugs, and from their smiles. Uh, this week, though, Rishi Sunak, the new British prime minister, uh, was in the States. He was in America and he tweeted something that caught a lot, that angered a lot of Canadians. Essentially, this is how it read. 79 years ago, British and American soldiers were landing on the beaches of Normandy. The cause was freedom. As on D-Day, British and American forces today continue to stand for freedom, peace and security. We honor them and those heroes who made the ultimate sacrifice. Now, of course, a lot of Canadians pointed out and then there were two little flags, emoji flags of the Union Jack and the Stars and Stripes. A lot of Canadians pointed out, wait a second, what about us? What about our contribution to that day? Ted, this is one of those things that I know having been there and covered this uh, in the past, sometimes it feels like we the, the Canadian contribution can be a little bit forgotten. Oh, often, often. Uh, right. I have a wonderful anecdote. When I was here, I think about 20 years ago, I brought in some of the first veterans who were part of the big celebrations, the 60th, the 65th. And among them was a man named Lorne Empey, who was a Royal Canadian Navy stoker. He's the man who's down in the bowels of a ship, and he's taking care of the engines and the boilers and the, all of the, the mechanics of the, the lower elements of the, of the ship. He was on a minesweeper, and the minesweepers in the Royal Canadian Navy were responsible for sweeping the German mines, which were regularly deposited in the channel, to prevent any travel on the channel. Well, with five beaches planned for the landings in Normandy, there were 10 channels swept to those five beaches. And the Royal Canadian Navy was responsible for two. 
Lauren was on a sweeper, not sure what he would encounter. And of course, deep down in the bowels of the ship, not sure whether he'd even survive. And when he got to the far side, uh, at the end of his watch, he came up on deck from deep inside the ship, looked back, saw as many as 7,000 ships plowing through those channels towards the beaches. And he said, I sat there and realized I was watching history unfold. All those years later, when in 2004, we went to one of the beaches that he actually swept. And we were on the beach looking out, and he had been very quiet during the tour. He hadn't said much. And suddenly there was a British gentleman there, obviously another veteran, and he said quite out loud, oh, I didn't know Canadians were involved in D-Day. And Lauren, who had been absolutely silent through most of the trip, suddenly jumped up and said, I was here, I was out there, I'm a Canadian, here's what we did. So we're wow. always trying to catch up and make sure others who were there and who've figured they know the history since learn the reality of our participation. It's interesting because we we know it quite well. Uh, and I can see how, I mean, in this case, I, I suppose I should ask what your reaction is to, to the British prime minister. I, I mean, in, in his defense, and I'm sure this won't be popular, he was in America at the time, right? So clearly playing to his guests. Uh, yeah, but, but that's not the first time that's happened. No, agreed. Um, so your reaction to that? Well, I remember, and I, I, I go back to the history of this. I remember going over the documents when Operation Husky occurred in the summer of 1943. And this was a joint operation to land in Sicily. This was the first penetration of Nazi-occupied Europe on the shores, the south shores of Sicily. The Canadians were in the middle. The British were off to the right flank and the Americans off to the left flank as they landed in Sicily. When the official announcement came through the White House, through FDR and through Eisenhower, of course, there was great excitement about the fact that the Allies had landed in Sicily and had begun the liberation of Europe. Of course, the only two armies recognized were the Americans and the British. The Canadians were completely omitted in the press release, and it was Mackenzie King and his staff who alerted FDR to the fact that they'd been omitted, and there was a huge kerfuffle, a great deal of apologetic transmission back and forth. They replaced that communique with a new one, indicating that, yes, the Canadians had participated. So we've been fighting that battle for 79 years. Right. And in this case, I mean, it was pointed out quite, what was interesting to see, and I thought this was heartening, was how many Canadians jumped up to respond on his social media feed to say, you forgot about us and you shouldn't. That was interesting. It is. I'm glad that, that they did. Um, it's they're paying attention. They're reading. They know their history. When I was doing my book on uh, Juno, and it was published in 2004, my publisher had the great forethought of approaching Sir John Keenan. Keenan, of course, the uh, highly regarded British historian, was invited to write a foreword to my book. And of course, he was he was thinking back to the time when he was invited as a historian to sit on a, a sort of a council that was preparing for what was then the 50th anniversary of D-Day operations. And he was sitting there with American historians, with British historians, with politicians and organizers and people who were planning the D-Day celebrations for 1994. And one of the first words out of his mouth was, or the first phrase when they were planning it, he said, don't forget the Canadians. This was a Brit right. reminding all the others to not forget the Canadians. And that was a very powerful moment for me and realizing that there was somebody out there who recognized the, the previous mistakes of, of retelling the story of that day. And it feels like it's something we have to continue that as more and more of our veterans pass away and are no longer around to tell their stories of D-Day and other moments in the Second World War, that it's incumbent among, among the rest of us to remind others not to forget our history either. 
And that's why these trips that we do, I was in a cemetery, we had, our group had gone there, and I decided to go to a cemetery that I only visit maybe once every two or three visits. It's a cemetery off to the side of Vimy, where a crater had been formed by a mine that the Germans had planted under the Canadian lines and exploded. And as I was going through many of the tombstones that I've seen before and making note of them and planting some flags, I was joined by a couple from Saskatchewan. They had traveled all the way from Saskatchewan to Paris, decided that it was important to visit Vimy, and they wandered into the cemetery, and we exchanged greetings and pins and hello, how are you, and why are you here? And then I was thrilled to say to them, why has this been an important stop on on your travels through France? And they said, it's part of being Canadian. We feel it's important to be here, pay our respects and recognize its importance in their lives. These, these people were 28 and 29 years old. Ted Barris, thank you so much. Pleasure. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Special counsel Jack Smith in Washington today announcing that former U.S. President Donald Trump is facing 37 felony charges related to the mishandling of classified documents. If you've turned on any television late today, I'm sure you know all of this already. It has been widely talked about. Uh, The indictment unsealed alleges that Trump stored, quote, scores of boxes of classified documents in various rooms throughout his Mar-a-Lago sanctuary in Florida. You may have seen the photos online. I think there were piles of documents in a bathroom somewhere it was i mean it, it was like they were strewn about the place like something off hoarders it was very strange to see still i mean the basis of this is very serious 31 separate counts of willful retention of national defense information under the espionage act uh, prosecutors say trump took about 300 classified files to his florida estate after leaving the white house about 100 of those labeled top uh, some but what are those some labeled top secret were seized when the fbi searched the palm beach mansion last august here again is jack smith our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the united states and they must be enforced violations of those laws put our country at risk of course, this is a big escalation for uh, Trump. He is the front runner uh, for the Republican presidential nomination. That's not really impacted. Well, at least he can technically still uh, claim that position and run for, and win and, and become president again, allegedly. Um, he's due in court in Miami on Tuesday. He's, of course, declared his innocence. But let's dig into just what we learned today because it seemed pretty, pretty explosive. Richard Painter is a law professor at the University of Minnesota and a former chief ethics lawyer for the White House between 2005 and seven. Uh, Thanks so much for staying up late on this Friday. Much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me uh, speak with you. Yes. T- tell me a bit about what we learned today, because, of course, for the layperson, when you read the, you know, when you read the details, uh, the prosecution's case seems p- pretty solid. Uh, but what did you find out today? Well, if uh, Donald Trump did the things that the indictment says he did, he is in very serious uh, trouble and will probably be convicted on several felony counts. Um, Now, we'll find out at trial whether he did what the indictment says he did. But the first thing uh, was intentionally removing and possessing documents. It appears that he knew he had the documents. He talked about it. Uh, This is not a case of inadvertent removal by uh, the president or a staff member. 
Uh, second, he apparently showed the documents to at least two people, one uh, person from the media and the second person from his political operation. That itself is a separate felony. And third, when the um, FBI and the uh, other authorities wanted to get access to the documents and conduct their investigation, uh, there is a lot of evidence of obstruction of the investigation uh, by Donald Trump. And that also is alleged in the uh, indictment. So this is a, a very serious case if the prosecutor can prove that he did what the indictment says he did. When you look at the strength of it, uh, I mean, you're right, of course, it's one side of this story, right? Clearly, uh, Donald Trump's lawyers will, will, will counter this. But how strong a case uh, did you see today? And were there any surprises in there, did you think? Well, I was surprised that he actually showed these documents to someone from the media and, and someone from his uh, PAC, his political action yeah. committee, according to the indictment. And uh, uh, if he says he didn't show them to those people, well, that would be contested at trial. But uh, that is really quite shocking that he would do that, and also that the documents would include a plan uh, for a military engagement uh, with Iran. Uh, apparently, that is included in these documents, and that he would take such a, a, a very highly sensitive uh, document, vital to our national defense, uh, uh, to his residence, and then be showing it to people is is very uh, very frightening, quite frankly. I was reading something late today that said this isn't really a case about classified documents. It's a case about national security. And, and that, that rung true to me. I mean, he's always been so cavalier with these things that you look at it and think and the, the photos I thought were, were perhaps the most and maybe, you know, perhaps the most damning sort of these, these documents kind of strewn all over Mar-a-Lago, some of them highly sensitive. Uh, I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. I think sometimes we take all the classified documents and the waters have been muddied a bit, but this, what, what kind of, I mean, ultimately, if, they, if he were to be convicted, this, this would be serious. Uh, this would be very serious. Intentional removal of classified documents is a very serious crime. And furthermore, showing them to someone else. And then third, obstructing the investigation. Now, we've had other uh, people, uh, including uh, former Vice President Pence and uh, former Vice President Biden, now President Biden, who uh, apparently had uh, inadvertently removed documents and their staffers did. Um, and that it was a serious national security breach and uh, is being investigated. Uh, but I don't see any sign that, uh, that President Biden is not uh, cooperating with that investigation uh, or trying to withhold evidence or anything. Um, but every time there's a compromise of classified documents, we need to investigate what happened from top to bottom, who saw the documents, uh, who might have had access to them, uh, in order to protect our national security. And what's very, very concerning in this case is that Donald Trump obstructed the investigation from day one and wasn't going to be honest about it at all. And that, that, that's very, very troubling. Yeah, I mean, it, it follows a pattern that that he's followed for a very long time. Um, what do you think his defense will be then in all this? If you, I, I mean, I suppose we'll have to guess a little bit, but I've heard people speculating about what exactly he may may use to try to defend himself in this situation. Because if you read the indictment, of course, it sounds sounds like they have him dead to rights, but clearly there's always a defense. Well, yeah, we'll see what his lawyers come up with by way of a defense at trial. I mean, he could argue he didn't do it, that, they, that he didn't know he had the documents, even though he's talking about the documents. 
I don't know what kind of defense he's going to come up with. Um, thus far, all we're hearing is the, well, Biden did it to defense. And uh, and that's really not true. I mean, the, 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 uh, the documents were inadvertently removed. Uh, they were discovered at the President Biden's house and at the uh, center, that Penn Biden Center, uh, that had been uh, set up, by the way, by to uh, by our ambassador to Canada, uh, David Cohen, when he was That's right. chairman of the trustees of the university there. I, I was very critical of that. I thought it was a horrible arrangement uh, for many, many reasons. Um, but uh, there is no evidence uh, that President uh, Biden intended to remove confidential or uh, classified documents or obstructed an investigation, uh, and that's going to be a very important investigation, particularly at the Penn Biden Center, to find out who was in there and who had access to the building in the locked closet. And we need to take that seriously. But the difference is that President Biden is not interfering in the investigation, is not obstructing justice. And once again, there's no evidence that he knowingly took the documents or showed them to people who don't have um, security clearance. Yeah, I mean, I'm because it fits in with so much of his personality. Um, but he must have been. I mean, you were you were at the White House. He must have been at some point. I doubt he was listening, but he must have been advised about how to handle these documents at some point in his when he first arrived. He did have briefings on classification and declassification. He knew exactly how the system worked. Uh, he was told how the system worked. Uh, but he uh, has had the attitude that he's above the law and that he can do whatever he wants when he wants. And uh, that is, uh, that's an attitude that has cost him a lot. And this is not his only uh, legal problem. He's also been indicted in New York for falsification right. of business records. There's another grand jury in Georgia investigating him for solicitation of election fraud when he asked the Secretary of State to just come up with 11,000 votes. And then, of course, the insurrection of January 6, 2021, and he may very well be in legal jeopardy for that. So uh, this is a, is a man who um, uh, seems to have an attitude that he's above the law. So listeners understand in this case, uh, and because, of course, there's a lot of politics involved, needless to say, uh, this was a grand jury. I mean, this was this was decided not as a political issue. This was this this went through a very defined legal process before this this uh, this indictment was uh, was filed. Well, well, yes, indeed. And he would not have been indicted if this had just been an inadvertent removal of uh, classified documents. Uh, he would not have been indicted uh, if he had not obstructed the investigation um, or intentionally shown the documents to other people. But putting all this together, um, uh, we have, according to the indictment, multiple counts of serious uh, violations of the Espionage Act. And uh, the grand jury uh, issued this indictment, and the next step is going to be to have a, a, a trial. Richard Painter is with us this half hour, law professor at the University of Minnesota. We've been talking about the indictment unsealed today against former President Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've covered cases in other parts of the world where leaders have been indicted and other countries are you know, sort of used to it to some extent. This is a big deal in America. It feels like, I mean, although this has been an ongoing affair, it feels like the federal you know, federal charges against a former president it, it sets things in a new, new spot. Does it change things a lot in, in America? 
Well, uh, this is a a clear indication that no one is above the law. And uh, just being a president or former president doesn't mean you're immune from prosecution. Uh, We went through this with President Richard Nixon in 1974 Mm -hmm. when he resigned, and he probably would have been charged federally with obstruction of justice if he had not been pardoned by President Gerald Ford. Uh, but uh, this time around, there's no pardon inside. I don't think uh, President Biden is going to pardon Trump. And um, uh, these, this trial is going to proceed. And uh, uh, the, the law is the same for everyone. We don't have uh, people simply because they're president be able to do anything they want. In this case, I mean, what could he face if convicted? Depends on how many counts he's convicted of. Indeed. Uh, but this could, could send him to prison if, if he were convicted on all the counts. Uh, but we'll see what the trial, uh, what, what comes out of the trial. Uh, this is a very serious situation, knowingly removing classified documents, knowingly showing them to other people who do not have a security clearance, and then obstructing the federal investigation. All three of those are very serious. On the political side of this, already I've been seeing tonight, of course, uh, you know, many supporters of his calling that, you know, saying that all Republican nominees should pledge to pardon him if, if elected or if they win. Um, in his case, he could still obviously run for the nomination and run for president, even if this is all hanging over him, right? Uh, yes, he can run for president. Um, there's only one charge that would clearly disqualify him under the Constitution if he were convicted of sedition and insurrection. He still does have exposure to prosecution for sedition and insurrection in connection with the January 6th um, uh, insurrection, which he incited. And that was part of a two-month plan to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And he was really quite persistent on that. And the uh, prosecutors, the federal prosecutor, uh, could decide to to, uh, file charges for sedition as well. If he were found guilty of sedition... He would be disqualified from public office under the 14th Amendment of of the United States Constitution, Section 3. Uh, But all the other charges would likely not disqualify him from public office. There's a a statute with respect to classified documents and espionage act. uh, Some of these counts have been brought against him today. The statute says that he's disqualified from public office if convicted. But that might or might not be constitutional in the case of the president. It, it is. It is an absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, if you, someone tried to explain this to you twenty years ago, you would have thought they were. You know, you would have thought they were out of their mind. What happens Tuesday? So I guess every all all eyes are now on Miami Tuesday. Well, he'll go in for an arraignment. I mean, that's going to be a routine procedure. Uh, so we're not going to learn anything new on Tuesday. Uh, we've got the indictment. We've seen the indictment that's been unsealed already. Uh, he'll certainly plead not guilty. Um, and uh, then go home. Uh, he'll be released either on a cash bail or, or maybe no bail at all on his own retirements. Uh, but uh, this will be sorted out on Tuesday. Uh, but that's just a preliminary hearing. But the, the next big step is, of course, the trial itself. Would that happen uh, quickly, uh, normally? Well, a defendant has the constitutional right to a speedy trial uh, to have a trial within maybe six months or a year of being charged uh, at most at the trial if the defendant uh, wants it but uh, Donald Trump may choose to do it the other way 
try to delay the trial as long as possible. Uh, And he might be able to postpone the trial uh, a year, year and a half even. He might be able to get away with that. We'll see what the judge does. Uh, And, of course, that would uh, push the call off to him until after the 2024 election. That's probably his goal right now. One would think so. Uh, Richard Painter, thank you so much for your insight on this. Oh, thank you very much for having me.